If you have your Bibles or your favorite app, we'll be in Matthew 5 this morning. Matthew 5. And this will be the last time we see Matthew 5, at least for as far as I can foretell. Um, we've been in Matthew 5 for right at three, no, four weeks now, almost pushing into the five week mark. We'll be in verses 38 through 48 uh, this morning. And again, this will end uh, where we're at in the fifth chapter. And then if you want to go ahead and read for next week, we will begin chapter 6 and try to hint out towards Matthew 7 by February 23rd. If you found your spot, Matthew 5.38, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word? We'll go to verse 48. May you hear the Word of Christ this morning. You heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't use violence to, uh, don't use violence to resist evil. Instead, when someone hits you on the right cheek, turn the other one also. When someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your cloak too. And when someone forces you to go one mile, go a second one with him. Give to everyone who asks of you. And don't refuse someone who wants to borrow from you. You heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for the people who persecute you. That way, you'll be children of the Father who is in heaven. After all, He makes His Son rise on bad and good alike, and sends rain both on the upright and on the unjust. Look at it like this. If you love those who love you, do you expect a special reward? Even tax collectors do that, don't they? And if you only greet your own family, what's so special about that? Even Gentiles do that, don't they? Well then, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this morning, the gift of sunshine, the gift of this beautiful weather that You have given to us. And Father, we also thank You for the gift of Your Word. May You at this time open our ears and our eyes and our hearts and all of who we are to receive the Word. That Your Spirit enlightens us. Your Spirit illumines us. That the Word is not worked apart from the Spirit, but the Spirit gives us understanding of the Word. And so, Lord, may Your Spirit settle in this place. May we be aware that Your Spirit is in our midst. And so, Father, work in us as we receive this Word this morning so that we might be a people who see the world the way that the Scriptures paint. That we might be able to live into the world in the way that the Scriptures guide and direct. And so, Father, work at this time through Your Spirit. And in the name of Your Son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to blindside you this morning with a statement. Hopefully it catches our attention. The Christian faith, if we truly understand it, is dangerous. The Christian faith, if we truly understand it, is dangerous. I believe... 
if it's comfortable, if the Christian faith is comfortable, we might have accepted a diluted version of the Christian faith. I didn't say a false version, but a diluted version, a watered-down version, a watered-down Jesus, watered-down Scripture. I'm reminded of this quote by C.S. Lewis, who said this, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. He is spot on with the heart of the Sermon of the Mount. Is that if you want a comfortable faith, I wouldn't suggest Christianity. Because it's meant to get underneath us. It's meant to really push hard against our assumptions and our own beliefs in order to give us a bigger view of who God is. When I typically talk to people who are questioning whether to actually follow this Jesus or not, whether to allegiance themselves and pledge themselves to this Jesus or not, what I typically find is that some people are really hesitant of doing this with this main reason why. It would be a disastrous loss of the status that they've built over years. It would be a disastrous loss of the reputation that they've designed over years. To give up how they are perceived in order to follow this Jesus, it's too hard. In order to follow this Jesus, that means they would have to give up this image that they've built up year after year after year and how people see them. And to see them as Jesus followers would be indeed too dangerous. But that's the point. That is the point. In one sense, the call to Jesus and to follow Him is dangerous. And on top of that, the call to follow Jesus, uh, His teachings is dangerous as well. And so as we move through this passage of verses 38 through 48 this morning, I want this to really ring in the back of our heads and our hearts as we see what Jesus is laying out for His disciples. One scholar puts it like this once it comes to the call of Jesus to His followers and those who are listening to His words. He says this, Israel isn't chosen. In the Old Testament, they're not chosen to be uh, God's special people just because they're special. They're chosen in order to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Israel is chosen so that through Israel, God can bless all people. And now Jesus is calling Israel to be a light of the world at last. He is opening the way, carving a path through the jungle towards that vocation or calling. He's urging His followers to come to Him on a dangerous road. As this author points out, there's nothing special in us as to why God chose us as the church. There's nothing favorable in us that God chose us. There's nothing unique in us that God chose us. The reality is that we find in the Scriptures it is out of God's sheer grace and love that He decided that this was most wise to set us on this dangerous mission of following Jesus and displaying His Gospel. 
And so let that ring in our heads as we move through these verses. Let's start with verse 38. Jesus says this, You heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You can actually find this Scripture in Leviticus 24. Let me give you the fuller passage of Leviticus 24 here. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner or the foreigner, the non-Israelite, as well as the native, the actual Israelite citizen. For I am the Lord your God. At first reading, you might think, Whew, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, fracture for fracture. I think we have two ways of reading this passage and really two ways uh, that even Jesus is illustrating for us this morning. So here's the first way. You can read that passage in Leviticus 24 and hold it very seriously. That this was a tick-for-tack kind of reading and a holding to that law. <coughs> fracture for fracture. You break somebody's bone, guess what? You're going to get your bone broken as well. You kill their animal, well, guess what? You've got to make it right. You take one of your own animals, give it to them. If you kill somebody, guess what? You're going to receive a killing as well. A tick-for-tack. If you cut off someone's hand, your hand is cut off in return. Now, that's the first reading of Leviticus 24. Let me throw in front of you a second reading of Leviticus 24. We can also read it as a deterrent. As also used sporadically. What I mean by this is we take seriously the, what's laid out in Leviticus 24 and we take seriously what Jesus is saying as well. Yet, as a deterrent, we understand that a law that discourages unethical actions. It is there to remind you of the implications, the repercussions of really killing somebody. And it is meant to persuade you or dissuade you to not do it. It deters us. At the same time, it would be practiced rarely in the most horrendous of cases. What you find, in fact, is that there's more laid out. If somebody did, say you went out uh, with your best friend, you decided to chop wood with this friend in the woods. And as Israelites, as you're working, you accidentally let go of the axe and it killed your best friend. Pure by accident. Built within the law of the Old Testament would have been grace. Because if you accidentally killed your best friend, it wasn't a, law, a life for a life. They had these places that were spread throughout Israel called cities of refuge. And you would flee to the city of refuge and you would tell them what happened and they would protect you so that then there could be some sort of judicial hearing and make sure that the case was actually as it was meant to be. So these cities of refuge function as judicial cities to make sure that an accident truly was an accident or that intention truly was intention. Now, in the worst of immoral cases, you could be held 
to a tick-for-tack. It would have been a strict holding of it. If you did intentionally go and kill someone, life for life. If I were to persuade you in which reading to hold, it would be that second one. Because what we find in historical documents, but also the rest of the Old Testament, is exactly that. They didn't hold to a strict tick-for-tack legal system. They understood that there was grace built into that system. They understood an eye for an eye as a deterring law, not as a strict holding. If you broke your uh, friend's leg because you were angry, they didn't always break your leg in return. It was meant to restrain again. It was meant to dissuade you from acting out in evil or unethical ways. Again, in the worst of immoral acts, you could be executed. But there was also times that this would happen. If you killed your friend out of madness, out of anger. There are cases where a family would, the one that you wronged, would arrange things so that either you or they would give the equivalent of a life of serving that family for the rest of your life. So if you killed your friend, there would be some sort of settlement that would work out. Well, you killed, well, you now need to serve this family for the remainder of your life. There had to be, in this law, a restitution, though, a making of right what was made wrong. And that's what I want us to hear, is a making of right of what had been made wrong. At the same time, Jesus invites his followers into a new way of responding to those people who have hurt us, who have wronged us, or possibly even insulted us, as we find in uh, the verse, 20, uh, verse 39. Jesus says this, But I say to you, do not use violence to resist evil. Instead, when someone hits you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In order to be slapped on the right cheek, you had two options here. You could use your left hand, think right cheek, left hand, open slap, right? That hand, left hand across the right cheek. But that probably wouldn't have been acceptable in Israelite culture because the left hand was used in um, less than useful activities such as bathroom activities. That's what you used your left hand for. You wouldn't have used your right hand to slap, excuse me, your left hand to slap someone. You would have used your right. In order to slap somebody across the right cheek with the right hand, you have to do what? You've got to backhand them. To be struck on the right cheek in the Israelite world would certainly have meant to be hit with the back of the right hand. That's not just violence. That's an insult. We even carry this kind of connotation in meeting today. Not just slapping somebody with the open hand, but the back hand. And that type of insult would have communicated that you are inferior. You're less than the person who hit you. And people who would have been hit with the back of the right hand would have been a, sli a slave, a child, or even possibly a woman in this day. Regardless of what type of insult, though, Jesus is giving us a very specific example, but he's also giving us a kingdom way to respond to that insult. 
Here's what he's saying, church. If you're insulted, don't return insult for insult. Jesus then adds another example to make his point. Look at verse 40. When someone wants you uh, wants to sue you and take your shirt, leave him your cloak also. This would have been kind of humorous when Jesus said it. We tend to read over this because this Hebraic kind of uh, humor he has. Similar to the last example was there's an insulting by slapping. Here what you have is an insulting by lawsuit. There seems to be a lawsuit here over possessions. And it seems to be the case that the person suing you wants everything. Your shirt, your coat, every bit of it. And this enemy wants every penny, every piece of property you own in order to get money and possessions from you. In response, here's what Jesus is saying. You give him everything. The shirt even on your back. The cloak or cloak that you have. Because when you're doing this, this is what you're saying. This is everything I have and you're taking every single piece of it. And all you have left, once you've taken off every article of clothing, is you're naked in front of this person. There's nothing left on you. Jesus is teaching His followers how to deal with very unjust legal systems in His day. Where this was a common practice to take everything that a person had owned and they're doing it not in a just way, but an unjust way. You are showing them, Jesus said, to these money-hungry enemies that you're truly a human being. And that you're reminding them that they can take everything that you own, even the coat, the shirt, everything that you possess, but at the end of the day, you are making it very clear to them. You're revealing that you're just a human being, just like them. And yet, Jesus doesn't stop there. He gives us one more example in verse 41. And when someone forces you to go one mile, go with him a second mile. The someone in this passage that Jesus is referring to is a Roman soldier. Because in this day and time, in any Roman-ruled territory, if a Roman soldier stopped you on the road, male or female, he could ask you to carry his equipment for one mile. That was the Roman law. If, say, the Roman soldier was tired, he had all this equipment on him, stopped you and said, go with me one mile, that was a part of the law. You put the equipment on your back, on your shoulder, and you carried it one mile, but you couldn't go any further. And notice what Jesus says, though. One mile? No. Go further. Go with Him two miles. Don't give up. Go a second mile. Jesus is turning the tables on this Roman law in this day. He's saying, don't fret. Don't plot revenge. Instead, what you do is you are to copy a generous God. Copy. Imitate this kind of generous God. Because the beauty about this generous God is He gives and He gives and He gives and He gives. This God doesn't go one mile. He's far more extraordinary in His grace. You go more than one mile. You go with Him too. Just like this God is limitless in His love, you also be limitless in your love. And so here's how I'd summarize these verses 39-41. through 
One scholar puts it like this. Whatever situation you're in, you'll need to think through it for yourself. What would it mean? What would it truly mean to reflect God's generous love? And despite the pressure and provocation, despite your own anger and frustration, what does it look like there to show God's generous love? We might consider these verses as maybe wise, good advice from Jesus Himself. But church, it's not. It's much deeper than that. It's good news. It's the gospel in action. It's the gospel in your own body acted out. Some might hear these verses as unreachable, maybe unattainable, that they're too idealistic by some idealistic rabbi, but they're not. Because when we read these verses in 38 through 48, do you see the life of Jesus in there? I mean, do you see his final days? You see exactly that. To offer the other cheek, well, guess what? Jesus offers the other cheek. He's beaten, bruised, mutilated. Or offer your last piece of clothing, he's completely stripped naked. This is the gospel in action. Or even going the extra mile. Jesus didn't just go one mile. He went several miles with the very people that He came to love and demonstrate that love. We could say that these verses right here are snippets. They are sound bites or maybe even these little brief scenes of the sacrificial kindness that we find in Jesus Himself. So that's not just idealistic teaching. It's not just nice, wise advice. They truly are embodiments of the Gospel. If you've searched for ways to actually live out the Christian faith, I would say here's very tangible ways in order to demonstrate that. Let's look now beyond 39 through 41 because as I see and read these passages, I see 39 and 41 is actually building to something bigger, and that's what happens in 43 through 47. He says this You heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for the people who persecute you. That way you'll be children of your Father in heaven. After all, He makes the sun rise on the bad and good alike and sends rain both on the upright and on the unjust. Look at it like this, says Jesus. If you love those who love you, do expect a special reward. Even tax collectors do that, don't they? And if only you greet your own family... What in the world is so special about that? Even the Gentiles do that, don't they? It seems to be the case that in this opening verse of verse 43, Jesus is addressing a cultural teaching. It's a cultural teaching because they're borrowing from Leviticus 19 of loving your neighbor, but then they add that part at the end. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. So you had probably a misperception in Jesus' day the twisting of Scripture to fit a different way of life that the people were pushing. Love your enemy, sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus saying, no, 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 no. You're twisting the Scriptures here. It doesn't say love your neighbor, hate your enemy. It's very clear in Leviticus 19. Love 
anyone. Love your neighbor regardless of who they are, even your enemies. And if you tried to pluck the Scriptures and find love your neighbor and hate your enemy in the Bible, you can't find it. You won't. You can try your best. Because that's why he is trying to push back on that cultural teaching, that twisting of Leviticus 19. And he's saying this, just as God's care and love is seen in the sun rising on good and the upright, uh, good and the bad alike, and just as you find in God's love that is witnessed in the rains that fall on the upright and the unjust, Jesus is prompting, he's inviting his followers to extend a very similar care, a very similar compassion and love to others. It's not just look and see at the sun. Look and watch how the rain falls on the good and the unjust alike. He's calling us to an action. You see the Father doing this. Do likewise. You are to show care and compassion and love of the Father on the bad and the good the upright and the unjust alike. Church, let me say this. Compassion cannot, it cannot be designated for only the good people that we know. It cannot be extended just to the, quote, upright, righteous, or churchy people that we know. Christian love cannot be held only for certain people that look like us that think like us, that desire like us, or other reasons that we might want them to be like us. That's not biblical love at all. What we find in agape is this selfless, sacrificial love. It's this limitless love. Biblical love, it does exactly that. It breaks down barriers in order to extend those barriers. So we can't see compassion as designated for only the good and not the bad. Only for the righteous and not the unrighteous. Look at your Father in heaven, Jesus says. It's for the bad and good alike. The unjust and the unrighteous alike. So let's start to bring this into fruition and see how this all comes together. One writer who captures this agape love that you find here in the Sermon on the Mount says this, the Sermon on the Mount isn't just how to behave. It's about discovering the living God in the loving and in the dying Jesus. And here's the part, church, learning how to actually reflect that love ourselves into the world that needs it so badly. That's the heart here. Seeing the Father's love found in Jesus, reflecting that love into the world that needs it so badly. If we gather weekly only to hear sermons, only to uh, sing our songs, we've missed the point of why we gather. When we leave from this building today, you and I may be, hear this, we may be the only sermons that our friends, our families, our co-workers, and our neighbors will ever hear. You are the sermons that these people will ever hear. And I'm not talking about just a speaking of a sermon, but a living out of the sermon. We are sermonettes. 
We are brief gospel messages to the good and the bad alike. We are gospelers, we might say. We carry the gospel on our backs and in our lives to the upright and the unjust. Not just to the good, not just the upright, but the bad and the unjust. We are the ones who are showing them the benefits of noticing that the rain is a gift. It is a charity from the Father. But the question I have to ask all of us this morning, and it's mainly for me, what message will your neighbors hear? What message will our neighbors hear? Will they hear a message that is wildly compassionate? A message that is sacrificial and filled with holy love? A message that is about death and resurrection? Or they hear something way different? Will they hear a message of religious arrogance? Will they hear a message of bigoted hatred? Will they hear a message of like a Pharisee-like mockery? Where we look down at them condescendingly. We're looking down on the very people that God loves. The one who sends the sun every day and the rain for every day, these types of people. This kind of message that is condescending, this type of message that is arrogant and hateful, church, that message doesn't require sacrifice at all. It doesn't promise new life, and it certainly isn't costly. It's cheap. It's diluted. It's watered down. Cheap grace doesn't offer the other cheek. Cheap grace doesn't sacrifice every last piece of your clothing. Cheap grace, it doesn't go extra miles. It just goes just enough. Cheap grace, it doesn't give to the hungry. Cheap grace, well, it doesn't love and certainly doesn't pray for its enemies. Cheap grace, lastly, it doesn't embrace other people who don't look like you. So what is the way forward? If it's not cheap grace, it must be costly grace. The way of Jesus, I think, demonstrates an alternative. A very unique and unmistakable path of costly grace. And here it is. Costly grace, it offers the other cheek. It doesn't return insult for insult. Costly grace is willing to sacrifice every single piece of clothing in your closet and on your back. Costly grace, it travels not the second mile, but the third or even the tenth mile. Costly grace on top of that, it doesn't just feed the hungry, it eats and feasts with the hungry. Costly grace, well... It loves and it enjoys praying for enemies. And lastly, costly grace, it even embraces those who nobody else will embrace. That's costly. And I think that's the heart of what Jesus is after in these verses 38 through 48. What kind of sacrifice, what kind of costly nature of the gospel have we accepted? Have we accepted a tainted or diluted or watered down grace? Or we've understand it a truly sacrificial, costly, and loving grace? So here's how I want to close this morning. 
I'm going to read a quote, and I'm going to read it twice. But as I read it, I want us to lower our heads and close our eyes. And I'm going to close our time reading this twice and praying. Ready? Let's pray. Here's the quote, church. Jesus spent His whole life engaging the people. Most of us have spent our whole lives trying to avoid. Say that one more time. Jesus spent His whole life engaging the people. Most of us have spent our whole lives trying to avoid. Father, that's the heart of these verses. Is that You have called us to spend our lives with the very people that Jesus has spent His entire ministry for. And forgive us forever failing to actually love the people that You call us to love. Because we have. We fail every day. We fail every week. And so Lord, as I'm reminded of the heart of these passages this week, forgive me. Because I have not shown that type of love. I have on many days drank from the waters of cheap grace. And Lord, forgive me of, of, of drinking of those cheap grace waters. And so Lord, I pray that You would forgive us of failing to actually love the people You've called us to love. To feed the people that You've called us to love well. To actually be with the people that You spent Your entire ministry loving and feeding and taking care of and showing compassion towards. Let us not be a people of cheap grace, but costly grace. May we truly be a people who are willing to turn the other cheek, sacrifice our clothing, go extra miles, feed and also eat with the hungry. To not only love our enemies and our neighbors, but to enjoy praying for our neighbors and enemies. And may we be known in this community, in this city, as a people who embrace those who are overlooked, marginalized, and not embraced. When people look at Hickory Grove, I pray that they look at us and they have these words on their mouths. That is a people of costly grace. That truly is a people who understand the sacrifice to which Jesus has called them. And so, Father, give us the strength and the maturity of faith to be able to live out those things. A people of costly grace. Father, we offer these things in the name of Your Son. Amen.